Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Very sort of experimental, almost avant-garde-ish kind of TV miniseries was served up to, to us this week here in the United States. Every night, same locale, same people gather to uh, go through the same thing, a vote. point of the vote was really beside the point. The point was they kept going through it with the same result and kept dealing with the emotional after effects of getting the same result. Really a remarkable, well, large cast. Not all of them were good. Uh, a nice proto-fight scene sort of enlivened, enlivened things one evening. Other evenings it was uh, just people reacting, cameras in strange places. I hope you got to see some of it. I don't think it's going to be renewed. And um, I can't tell whether the uh, ending was satisfying or not. I'm of two minds about it. In one, in one direction, there could even be a sequel. Even kind of soon. If just one person objected. But if this ain't peak TV, nothing is. Hello, welcome to the show.
from New Orleans, Louisiana, where already it's carnival time again. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the smart world. Well, if you were writing this week, how about this for a storyline? Richest man in the world can't pay his rent. Well, the real world wasn't written, but it came close. Second richest man in the world getting sued for not paying his rent. This is from the uh, British tech website, The Register. A landlord has alleged that Elon Musk's cost-cutting campaign at Twitter at Twitter has extended to not paying rent, according to a lawsuit filed by Columbia Property Trust. Yeah, I, I kind of trust them. It owns the office tower at 650 California Street in San Francisco, where Twitter rents the 30th floor. The uh, social media platform owes it an estimated sum of $136,000 in change. Included in the filing is the default notice sent in mid-December, which warns Twitter to pay the outstanding balance within within five business days or else. The lawsuit at uh, Superior Court for the County of San Francisco is dated December 29th. It is apparent, it's apparent the bill wasn't settled yet. The register asked for a... Um, Response won't receive one probably because Twitter has eliminated its PR operation. Well, that saves some money. The New York Times in December claimed that Twitter had not paid rent for any of its global offices in weeks, according to, quote, three people close to the company and, quote, simply refused, unquote, to uh, pay a $197,000 bill for private charter flights made in the week of Musk's takeover, for which it has also been sued. It's now reported that a data center was switched off, janitors and security guards have been cut, and in some cases, you might want to cut this out and paste it, workers are bringing their own toilet paper to Twitter offices, all to save... Elon, some money, as Jimmy J.J. Walker calls it in those insurance, I'm sorry, insurance commercials. And damn it, the enrollment period is over, so I'm, I'm missing those commercials now. Meta, you know it as Facebook, as Facebook until just a short time ago, suffered a major defeat this week that could severely undercut Facebook and Instagram advertising businesses. This is after the European Union regulators found that Meta had illegally forced users to effectively accept personalized ads. The decision included a fine of about $414 million. It has the potential to require Meta to make costly changes to its advertising-based business in the EU, which just happens to be one of the largest markets in the world. 
The ruling, according to the New York Times, is one of the most consequential judgments since the EU became the home of a landmark data privacy law aimed at restricting the ability of Facebook and other companies from collecting information about users without their prior consent. The law took effect about five years ago. The case hinges on how Meta receives legal permission from users to collect their data for personalized advertising. The company includes language in its terms of service agreement. That's the thing you must accept before accessing services like Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. That effectively means users must allow their data to be used for personalized ads or stop using Meta's social media services altogether. EU authorities determined that placing the legal consent within the terms of service essentially forces users to accept personalized ads. That violates the European law known as the General Data Protection Regulation, or the GDPR, as we like to call it here at the Lashondo. The decision does not specify how the company must comply with the ruling. It could result in Meta allowing users to choose whether or not they want their data used for targeted promotions. If a large number of users choose not to share their data, oh, I can't imagine that, it would cut off one of the most valuable parts of Meta's business, information about a user's digital history is used by marketers to get ads in front of people they think are the most likely to buy. Those practices help Meta generate $118 billion in revenue in 2021. That would help Elon pay the rent. The penalty against Meta in Europe contrasts with regulations in the United States where there is no federal data privacy law. Only a few states like California have taken steps to create rules similar to those in the EU. Any changes that Meta makes in the EU EU, could affect users in the United States. Many tech companies apply EU rules globally, Tom, globally, because that's easier to implement than limiting them to Europe. It's the same way that uh, states in the United States mimic California's laws regarding air pollution, in some cases, um, for car manufacturers, because it's easier for auto manufacturers to make one set of cars for the entire company, for the entire country, than one set for California and another set for the rest of the place. This is the latest business headwind facing Meta was already grappling with a major drop in ad revenue because of a change made by Apple two years ago that gave iPhone users the ability to choose whether advertisers could track them or not. Consumer surveys suggest a clear majority of users have blocked tracking. Really? You don't want to be tracked? The hell is wrong with you? Company stock prices plummeted more than 60% in the past year. It's laid off thousands of employees as it's trying to shift its business model to the metaverse. You know, where you wear that thing on your head? And you see those made-up places? Meta says it will appeal the decision in Europe. Could be a long legal fight that will test the power of the GDPR. We strongly believe our approach respects GDPR, and we're disappointed by these decisions, says Facebook. 
The result was hailed by privacy groups as a long overdue response to companies gobbling up as much data as possible about people online in order to deliver personalized ads. But the more than four years it took to reach a decision was also seen by critics as a sign that enforcement of the GDPR is weak and slow. Now to space and what falls out of it. Space hardware, this is from Space News, I think it's appropriate. Space hardware tumbling out of orbit may lead to unforeseen environmental and climate impacts due to the growing scale and pace of launch activities. What's needed is better monitoring of the situation, as well as regulation to create an environmentally sustainable sustainable space industry. Making that case is Jamie Shuttler, Associate Professor of Earth Observations at the University of Exeter in Cornwall. He and colleagues authored a research paper, Atmospheric Impacts of the Space Industry Require Oversight, in the journal Nature Geoscience. Decreased satellite costs have led to large spacecraft constellations, like your bunch of Starlinks. Thank you, Elon. Pay your rent thereby creating a constant flow of deorbiting debris as craft die and are replaced. Quote, this debris could double the annual injection of aerosol particle mass into the mesosphere, says the paper, increasing the number of aluminum particles that can reach the stratosphere where they promote ozone loss. We're now realizing the full benefits of access to space, but our understanding of the environmental impact of these activities is currently limited, Shuttler told Space News. Maximizing these benefits whilst minimizing the environmental impact, that's how you know he's British, whilst, is likely to become increasingly important for science and industry. Unquote. As well as for Earth, maybe? As for research priorities that need to be further explored, Shuttler underscored them. there are key steps forward. One is for the space industry to collect rocket emissions data during launches and make it publicly available. Industry could also make available a total satellite content, a simple total for each type of mineral or substance within their existing spacecraft and satellites yet to be lofted. These data would significantly aid research in this area, Shuttler says. The research itself is going to be highly cross-disciplinary and need input from rocket designers, atmospheric scientists, numerical modelers, satellite and orbital engineers, climate scientists, and etc. In another study published last June in the journal Earth's Future, Researchers from University College London, the University of Cambridge, and Massachusetts Institute of Technology assessed the impact of rocket launches and space debris on stratospheric ozone and global climate. A co-author of that study and an associate professor of physical geography at University College London says there's a need for more sustainable solutions for dealing with space debris. Even if a re-entering rocket were to completely burn up, it would produce the air pollutant nitric oxide from the high temperatures, contributing to the depletion of ozone in the stratosphere. That ozone protects us from harmful ultraviolet radiation from the sun.
as you may recall from that whole deal. Certainly our preliminary results suggest that the substantial increase in satellite launches and early return of satellites from the Starlink program, thank you Elon, are cause for concern, the researcher says. As of last spring, there were almost 5,500 active satellites in orbit. One estimate predicts the launch of an additional 58,000 by 2030. According to the General Accounting Office, exotic material emissions can be produced during satellite reentry. These exotic materials can include paints, resins, epoxies, toxic materials, and radioactive materials used in spacecraft components, such as electronics and batteries. There are few observational data for satellite reentry, according to the General Accounting Office. Quote, accurate modeling data are limited because the industry has not released satellite composition data, unquote. What are those things up there made of? Stardust. That's how smart this world is. How about some news of the godly? Would you like that? All right, here you go. Dateline Rome, a 38-year-old German man who says he was abused by a known predatory priest, has been allowed to continue his lawsuit against the late Pope Benedict XVI's eventual heirs. Eventual? It's about time. In November, Benedict said he would defend himself in the case in front of a German court. But he died end of September, sorry, end of December, the age of 95. He had, before expiring, secured a law firm which will continue to represent his estate. Andrea Tietz, spokesperson for the Traunstein Court in Bavaria, confirmed that the suit, which accuses the former pope of willfully ignoring complaints about Father Peter Hunermann, who had allegedly abused the victim when he was just 11 years old. The victim uses the pseudonym Julian Schwartz, said the priest showed him pornography and forced him to have sexual intercourse and oral sex. When he told his mother about the alleged abuse, she told him not to lie. The victim eventually ran away from home and fell into a spiral of substance abuse. He sold his version very well the victim said in the lawsuit. He says the former pope, born Joseph Ratzinger, was aware of the situation and failed to act. In 2016, the priest was investigated. The Vatican judiciary determined that Ratzinger and Archbishop Friedrich Vetter did, in fact, know of the abuse. Tietz said in a Monday statement that the court has allowed the case to continue despite the death of the former pope. Benedict has no known children, the Daily Beast usefully reminds us. It's unclear if he left his estate to any relatives who will now be the subject of the suit. The legacy of the former pope, the first to resign in 600 years, has been marred by allegations that he willingly covered up and moved around predatory priests. A 1900-page study convicted, 
by the German church in late 2021, found that 235 people in the Munich diocese alone were accused of abusing 497 children under the age of 16 from 1954 to 2019. Most of the victims were male. Thank you for asking. Before becoming Pope, Ratzinger led the Archdiocese of Munich from 1977 to 1982. Before becoming head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, that outfit has also been accused of complicity in decades of cover-up. The late retired Pope was accused of acting erroneously on four occasions, including a letter drafted by lawyers of several victims of clerical abuse by Hulerman, who was later credibly accused of raping 23 boys aged 8 to 16. Benedict had admitted that he had mistakenly told German investigators he had never heard of the complaints, only to issue a statement confirming that as the head of the Munich church, he had been informed. It's so easy to forget about being informed about child abuse, ain't it? So this week, ladies and gentlemen, as I said in the opening of the program, there was some great TV going on, on the news channels, and even better on C-SPAN, which was allowed to have its own cameras in the House chamber, as if they were, you know, rioters on January 6th. The cameras could be on the floor of the House chamber only because the House wasn't in session yet, because they didn't have a speaker. And the votes, as you know, this week were eight, uh, sorry, 15 ballots to select a speaker. Former President Trump played two roles in this continuing drama. Matt Gates, the, uh, for, uh, the House member who sort of specializes in... Uh, making fusses, had uh, during one of the ballots, I forget which, somewhere around eight or nine, had put into uh, nomination for speaker the name of Donald J. Trump. Um, The whole point of the exercise being to be able to vote for somebody other than Kevin McCarthy, the uh, California congressman. Now, as I say, it was a means for Matt Gates to avoid voting for Kevin McCarthy or voting present, which would take him off the list of people actually voting for a named person, which is the requirement for your vote counting in the overall total, which, you know, anyway. And so when that roll call was called and reported, It was a notable occasion where Kevin McCarthy got 200-something votes. The uh, head of the Democratic caucus, or the nominee of the Democratic caucus to be speaker, got 212 votes. And Donald Trump got one vote. It just must not have been good for the old ego, you know. And then he re-enters the story late in the process, on Friday of this week, when reportedly Donald Trump entered the picture and tugged at the sleeve of Matt Gates to vote present 
and thereby allow Kevin McCarthy to actually assume the title and accept the gavel of Speaker of the House. Speaker McCarthy. <laughs> you like the way that sounds, right? <laughs> Mr. President, I, uh, I gave you a shout-out top of my acceptance speech. Yeah, I heard about it. <laughs> it warmed my cockles. I was just calling to officially congratulate you on uh, what I helped you achieve. I I almost felt like you for a moment there, sir. Uh It feels good, doesn't it? Well, I mean, such a struggle to get to your goal that you almost wonder whether you still want to do it. (laughs) That's just because you haven't got to the punishing the ones who crossed it point yet. Then it feels effing great. (laughs) I suppose it will. I mean, you have no idea how long my goal has been to hold this gavel. You got it in your hand now? Huh? Haven't let go since they gave it to me last night. I slept with it. Yeah. But see, that was your big mistake. Oh, oh, oh I know. I should have left it in the office. But uh, I think we're changing that rule. Letting other people know how much you want something is the big mistake. Hmm. It lets them know the best way to F with you. Take it from me. Well, I guess I did. <laughs> see, I, I, I can joke again now. That's great. Well, look, I just wanted to make sure you'd really know how much you owe Trump. Oh, I sure do. They were they were threatening to throw my furniture out of the office. But, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, that reminds me of a little question I have about this whole thing. Question. You know, next to answers, questions are my favorite thing. So make what they ask. Well... Obviously, you know how important this outcome was to me. Well, of course, to our great country. Sure, sure. No better country. And I think it was right after the second ballot that uh, I tried to get in touch with you. You know, the not-so-secret service set up this uh, crazy, complicated phone setup for me. And? No, just that. So, I mean, you could have twisted Matt Gates's arm on the third ballot as easily as the 15th, no? Even the Secret Service couldn't get me on the phone this week. Swear to God, it was a disaster. Oh. Well, I guess that's just the luck of the damn draw, huh? Kevin, Kevin, don't tell me you were born this squishy. You wouldn't have been nearly this grateful to me on the third ballot. You had to go through some things. When we get to the innards of the presidential primary... It'll be much easier for you to remember the 15th ballot, right? (laughs) I suppose so. Great. But you really should get the Secret Service to fix that phone thing. You know what? You're absolutely right. Talk to you later, Mr. Suddenly Speaker. Will do, Mr. Still President. Our smart, 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 smart world. A ransomware attack on the British newspaper, also published here in the United States and in Australia, The Guardian, has hoppled the news organization's basic operation, shutting down everything from its office Wi-Fi 
to the tills in the staff canteen. That's Brit for you. That's Brit language for you. The Guardian described the attack that began on December 20th as a serious incident which has affected our IT network and systems. Paper closed its offices, telling staff to work remotely for several days around the Christmas holidays. That's according to Semaphore Media. But in a memo to employees this week, the chief executive said the company's offices will be closed at least the 23rd of this month. Two Guardian staffers told Semaphore that a tiny skeletal crew continues to go into the London office. Said one Guardian employee, quote, it's been a total nightmare, unquote. The staffer told Semaphore the print paper nearly did not come out on the first couple of days following the hack. Remains a heavy lift. Staffer said the paper had nearly missed its payroll. Well, Elon can take care. The staffer said the remains are concern among at least one staffer that Semaphore spoke with that some files were in production. They were either lost or impacted by the breach in an additional memo this week after this story was first published. The uh, CEO of The Guardian said the company's payroll system had returned to normal, but that UK pension payments were slightly delayed. will be paid later this month. Guardian staffers who spoke to Semaphore said there seemed to be a distinction between the systems that were working and those that continued to be shuttered. The paper's email and digital public systems have operated normally, but some of the more antiquated systems, company expenses and some elements of print production, remain buggy. Columnist picture bylines have disappeared in print for the moment. As a result of a hack, a blow for some of the egos of the paper's opinion writers. Said a third Guardian employee, We're lucky that some of the systems don't talk to each other. That's exactly how smart this world is. And now, a new feature of this program, speaking of smart worlds, a look at what um, people in the industry are calling the crypto winter. One of the original developers behind Bitcoin, Luke Dash Jr., now claims to have lost basically all his Bitcoin as a result of a hack that occurred just before the new year. That's according to Cointelegraph.com. In a New Year's Day post on Twitter, the developer said the alleged hackers had somehow gained access to his pretty good privacy key, a common security method that uses two keys, two, two keys, to gain access to encrypted information. In the thread, he shared a wallet address where some of the stolen Bitcoin had been sent, but didn't reveal how much of his Bitcoin was stolen in total. He said he had no idea how the attackers gained access to his key, though some in the community have pointed to a possible connection with an earlier Twitter post from Das Jr. in November that noted his server had been compromised by new malware backdoors on the system. He told a user in his most recent Twitter thread that he'd only noticed the recent hack after getting emails from Coinbase and Kraken about login attempts. 
The name Kraken is everywhere these days. Some using it for a new Omicron variant. This this particular use about a um, crypto account. The incident has also caught the attention of Binance CEO Changpeng Zhao, who offered condolences and support in a New Year's Day post. Sorry to see you lose so much. Informed our security team to monitor. If it comes our way, we will freeze it. If there's anything else we can help with, please let us know. We deal with these often. Really? Some in the crypto community have speculated that lax security might be blamed for the loss. In a Reddit thread from New Year's Day, a user calling himself Sat Standard suggested that Dash Jr. may not have taken a mid-November security breach seriously enough and later suggested that the Bitcoin developer did not keep different activities separated. He had hot wallet on the same computer. He did everything else. It looks like he was really complacent, unquote. Cointelegraph reached out to Dash Jr. over Twitter for more information about the alleged hack, but did not hear back. The news has also ignited a debate around self-custody, which became a hot topic after the collapse of FTX last year. Binance's Zhao said, sad to see even an OG Bitcoin core developer lost $3.5 million. Self-custody has a different set of risks. I guess that means keeping the stuff yourself. Online social media BTC, that's Bitcoin influencer Udi Wertheimer, also took the time to question whether self-custody was a viable and safe option, commenting that one shouldn't manage manage your own keys. If even one of Bitcoin's OG developers messes this up, I really don't know how other people are expected to do it safely. And also about crypto winter, crypto exchange Wobi has confirmed it will cut its employee base by 20% after its chief executive had earlier denied layoff reports. This from Coindesk.com reports that Wobi is dramatically cutting headcount, requiring employees to take their salaries in stable coins. Those are supposedly crypto coins that are linked inexorably to the U.S. dollar. And to close Internal staff communication channels to quell a rebellion have taken a toll on its exchange token and trading volume. Wobi advisor Justin Sun, who's been representing the company publicly, denied the Wobi layoffs. However, since then, the company has done a reversal with the Wobi spokesperson confirming reducing headcount by 20%. A very lean team will be maintained going forward, said Kate Lee the spokesperson for the exchange. Its token, the HT token, has fallen by nearly 11% during the last few hours. 
The token is down nearly 30% over the past month. Yeah, that sounds like winter to me. Woo Blockchain reported that employees who refused to accept being paid in crypto would be dismissed, raising concerns throughout the workforce. And others on Twitter reported that staff had been locked out of internal communications channels. Sounds like the future, doesn't it? And now... So sorry. Dr. Natalia Solenkova woke up to an image circulating a Twitter feed of a message she never wrote. Someone had created what appeared to be an image of a tweet from her, which said she will never regret getting the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, quote, even if it turns out I injected actual poison and only had days to live, unquote. Solenkova said, according to the LA Times, she never wrote that message, but the fake tweet got amplified by others, including podcast host Joe Rogan, who spent about 11 minutes discussing the false tweet as if it were real. It's a fabricated tweet from beginning to end, Solonkova said, later adding, this is absolutely like the worst accusation one can get that you're a physician and you're knowingly, literally killing your patients. On Thursday night, Rogan apologized after discussing the fake tweet. He said part of the episode that referenced the tweet was delayed after he was informed it was not kosher. The show was already out. We initially decided to post a notice saying we got tricked, but then later thought it best just to delete it from the episode. He tweeted, my sincere apologies to everyone, especially the person who got hoaxed. This apology comes a year after several musicians and scientists, there's a group, accused Brogan of spreading in misinformation about COVID-19 on his podcast. Brogan spoke about the tweet as if it were real in his show, saying, it's a fascinating perspective that this person claims to be about love, but has the most uncharitable view of people who didn't get vaccinated. And the idea that I didn't get vaccinated out of hate, I find so ridiculous. The fake tweet was pointed out, pointed out by Washington Post reporter Taylor Lorenz, who noted the doctor was now receiving harassment for the doctored tweet that was circulating on the internet. Solnikova said she's exploring her new legal options. She points out that Rogan apologized to the person who got hoaxed. He didn't apologize to me, that he defamed me, discredited me, and it's still circulating. The video is still online. You can find it. Since the false image circulated on Twitter, Solnikova has spent hours trying to flag the site to take down the fake content involving her but says the platform has not been receptive. Well, of course not. They can't pay the rent. She's also received harassing messages from others, including disparaging tweets, calling for her to be decertified and that she should go back to her home country of Russia, even though she's an American citizen. She and her attorney said Rogan and his staff should have taken more time to fact check the image of the fake tweet which shows more characters than is currently allowed 
in a single tweet on Twitter. Twitter, you might be surprised to hear, did not respond to comment. Angela Bassett's teenage son got himself into some hot internet water. 16-year-old Slater Vance recently went viral on TikTok with a prank on his mom about Michael B. Jordan that went sideways. In the video, which has since been deleted, Slater filmed as he told his mom that the Creed star had died suddenly, causing her to panic before she realized it was a prank. After deleting the video, which offended many TikTok users, the teenager uploaded a new video apologizing for the prank. I would like to sincerely apologize for taking part in such a harmful trend, he said. I apologize to Michael B. Jordan's entire family, his extended family, and Michael directly, as he's an idol of mine. And taking part in a trend like this is completely disrespectful. I don't wish any bad ramifications of my actions upon his family, nor my parents, as they deserve none of the backlash. I own this was a mistake, and I hope this can be a teaching lesson. A teaching lesson to anyone else who uses social media as a tool and a source of entertainment to truly understand that your actions can have consequences that extend beyond you. I apologize for any hurt my actions may have caused Mr. Jordan or my parents or anyone else who could have been involved in this. And I am truly, truly and sincerely sorry. That's two truly's. And one sincerely. Storm Elliott pushed grid operations to the brink in many regions of the United States and caused shortages in others. Quote, we're sorry for what our customers experienced. Unquote, Julie Jansen, executive vice president and CEO of Duke Energy Carolinas, speaking to regulators of North Carolina. Quote, we regret not being able to provide customers as much advance notice as we would have liked and acknowledge that the outages themselves lasted far longer than we first expected, unquote. Duke's rotating outages were the first ever by the company in the Carolinas, said officials, and were called to prevent potentially larger and longer blackouts. About 15% of Duke Energy's customers were affected. The utility said electricity demand outpaced its expectations while generation capacity fell. And power purchases the company had been relying on turned out to be unavailable. The failure of an automated tool used to disconnect and then restore power required some circuits to be restored manually, that is to say once a year, causing outages to last longer than planned. The fast-moving pace of events leading up to the temporary outages did not permit us to be as proactive in our communications as we would have liked, said Duke's president of North Carolina operations. In Tennessee, TVA said it was investigating the need for rotating outages. The utility provides electricity, or did, for more than 150 local power companies serving 10 million people in Tennessee. As Republicans failed for the second straight day to select a Speaker of the House, Fox News host Jesse Waters came to the realization that he might, he might have acted prematurely in prior interviews by implying that Representative Kevin McCarthy would surely land that job. This doesn't happen often, but tonight Primetime needs to issue an apology, he explained about his show. 
It appears we may have gotten a little ahead of ourselves. I may have jumped the gun a little bit, Waters admitted, saying that he's sorry for putting a jinx on the congressman. The voting process for House Speaker isn't as cut and dry as we thought it would be, said Waters in his apology. Skip Bayless, sportscaster, apologized after his tweet on the injury sustained by Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin sparked outrage. Bayless weighed in on the injury on Twitter before the NFL had postponed the game. No doubt the NFL is considering postponing the rest of this game, but how, he wrote. This late in the season, a game of this magnitude is crucial to the regular season outcome, which suddenly seems so irrelevant. Unquote. An ESPN analyst, Robert Griffin III, was among those who rebuked Bayless. DeMar Hamlin's life is on the balance, he replied to his tweet. Get your head out of your ass, unquote Bayless. Eventually apologized for his tweet. Nothing is more important than that young man's health. That was the point of my last tweet. I'm sorry if that was misunderstood, but his health is all that matters. I prayed for him and will continue to. And, of course, ultimately, the NFL canceled the game. Dayline Savannah, Georgia, the man accused of shooting a teenager campaigning for Senator Raphael Warnock, during the Georgia runoff election, has apologized to him. The teen was at the front door of Jimmy Pays's home beginning of December when Pays allegedly shot through the closed door and hit him. Quote, young man, that I could apologize to you personally one day, eye to eye, is the only way to truly convey how deeply apologetic I am to have caused you to suffer, Pays said in a written statement. I am so very sorry, young man. I am sincerely ashamed to have hurt you, and all the more for having done so while you were outrighteously serving our community and in a time of great struggle. When police from the Savannah Police Department arrived around 5.30 that evening, they found a 15-year-old teen boy redundant department department who was shot in his leg he was taken to a hospital and uh, for treatment and then released quote i beg you never ever think that you were the victim because of who you are your identity your person no had the events unfolded differently you would have certainly been greeted at the door by a friend and ally which is my lifelong shame to endure unquote the apology continued the police department charged Pies with aggravated assault, aggravated battery, and overriding. Dayline Stephen Pass, Stevens Pass, Washington. It's the busiest time of year for the slopes. Some local ski resorts are struggling with the demand. Two major western Washington ski resorts, Stephen Pass and Summit at Sequalami, issued apologies after overcrowding left many skiers and snowboarders to ring in the new year with frustration. Many patrons of Stevens Pass said they were turned away after the parking lots hit capacity, even though they had pre-purchased tickets or scheduled lessons. Those who parked in surrounding towns said they were left waiting more than an hour for transport to the resort. 
Helen Galbraith, Stevens Pass General Manager and Vice President, said, I want, to have every, I want everyone to have a great experience at Stevens Pass, and that wasn't the case for all of our guests on Friday and Monday. I witnessed firsthand how frustrated and disappointed some of you were. Actions speak louder than words. We look forward to sharing more details about how parking will be different with you shortly. After visitors to the summit at Sequalami encountered many of the same issues, the resort issued a statement on Twitter admitting, admitting it made a mistake. We, we drastically underestimated passhold visitation and deeply regret not having more lifts and terrain open today to spread everyone out. To each and every skier and snowboarder that came up today, sorry, we blew it. We know ex you expect more from your home mountain. Today was a painful learning moment for us. We know we can do better, and we will strive to do better for all of you going forward, unquote. And finally, Southwest Airlines, of course, is trying to make travelers who are caught in its surge of canceled flights over the holidays feel a little bit better by giving them 25,000 frequent flyer points. The airline, according to the AP, says the points are worth more than $300 in flights. Hey, Southwest, try harder. Southwest included the offer in a letter, another apology for the meltdown, from CEO Bob Jordan. Quote, I know that no amount of apologies can undo your experience. He added the airline is acting, quote, with great urgency to process refunds, return lost bags, and handle requests for reimbursement of costs incurred by stranded travelers. Unquote. And they're also trying real hard to find the $300. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. It relentlessly returns next week at the same time over these same radio stations. You've heard of those. And on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it'll be just like Kevin McCarthy getting challenged first day in office. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The um, email address for this here program, listing of the music you hear here, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Where else can you get that? Nowhere else, I'll tell you. And I'll mean it. That's all at harryshare.com, along with a lot of stuff to read and hear, think about, and ignore. And speaking of ignoring, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show's written and produced and performed by me, so blame me, and comes to you through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City.